Well, good morning. Welcome again. If you're new and spiritually searching or a longtime member, whether you're joining us online or in person, we are so glad that you're here. Now, wouldn't it sound odd when you lost your charging cable again, if you muttered, Kanye West, where the heck did I put it? Or if the Uber driver yelled, Sir John A. McDonald, when someone cut him off in traffic. I'm not sure how much of a claim to fame it is, but Jesus' name gets used as a swear word more than anybody else's in history. When I was 17, I went on a gap year to India, and I stayed with a number of Muslim and Hindu host families. And I will never forget that one sunny morning when my Muslim host mother was sweeping uh, the small cramped kitchen, and she asked me, what do Christians believe? Because she knew that I had grown up in a Christian home. I was taken aback by the bluntness of her question, and my cheeks quickly reddened when I realized that I actually only had platitudes about being kind and wanting to help other people character traits that my host mother knew that I had seen her family exhibiting while we lived in close quarters. That fateful journey then led me on an intellect, that fateful conversation then led me on an intellectual journey to discover what, if anything, made Christianity unique or even true, true in the sense that two plus two equals four, an intellectual journey that eventually became a personal one. When at university, I claimed the faith that my parents had shared with me and I claimed it as my own. Is Christianity true? Is it worth making the effort during a pandemic to be part of a Christian community? Or getting back into those long forgotten rhythms of getting the kids up on Sunday mornings and letting your friends know you'll meet them in the afternoon. Jesus. We're starting a new teaching series called This is Jesus, looking at the most famous man in the world through the lens of the first century eyewitness writer, Mark. And this morning with the kids physically back in school, some of us back in the office, some of us thinking the pandemic is winding down while others reckon we're about halfway through. This morning, we're going to see two things about this Jesus. The big reveal and the big reversal. The reversal and the reveal. And what they could mean for our daily lives, searcher and disciple alike. So let's quickly remind ourselves of the contours of Mark's eyewitness account that Kirsty read for us. Jesus and his disciples have come down from the district of Caesarea Philippi, which is roughly in the modern-day disputed Golan Heights. And Jesus is just leaving a trail of miracles and astonished gossip behind him. He's been healing, and people were impressed. But he'd also been teaching about the difference between words and deeds, loving your enemies, and how they're hard-to-swallow stuff. Every now and then, he would stop and give the disciples a pop quiz to see how much they were paying attention and he didn't hide his displeasure with their low scores. 
Not surprisingly then, they're on edge when Jesus gathers them all around and asks a much higher stakes question than he's asked so far. So far. This time, it's not a question about something that he's taught or done. It's a question about who he is. Who do people say that I am? Phew, they must have thought, we can nail this one. John the Baptist, one of them helpfully answers. Elijah, someone else throws out. Or maybe one of the other prophets. Because there's no great risk in repeating what they've heard, after all, passing along what others believe. This is just a hive mind amongst friends, a staff meeting for the purpose of assessing Jesus' key performance indicators. You can almost hear the eagerness in their voices as they offer up the happy gossip that seems to mark Jesus out for greatness. You're Elijah, Jesus. Which one's the right answer? But he won't give it to them. Because what he really wants is their answer. And again, you can almost see their faces when he turns the question back on them. But who do you say that I am? Those who spent years with him, sleeping rough on hillsides, his closest friends, who've seen him perform wonders and teach audacious things. Who do you say that I am? And while Mark doesn't record it, I sort of imagine the air being thick with the immensity of that moment. There's like a pause, and they all look at their feet or awkwardly pick their fingernails. Who knows how long that pause was before Peter broke the ice? You are the Messiah, a Hebrew word which means God's chosen one, the long-awaited person who would usher in God's new world order the Messiah, the plan of God in a person. You gotta love Peter. He's a ready, fire, aim kind of guy. First to follow Jesus, first to try and walk on water, the first to say what no one else had yet figured out. You are the Messiah. And because Peter was right, Jesus promptly commanded him not to say a word. Because if the word got out now, about his true identity, Jesus might be thrown in jail and he's just warming up. You are the Messiah. The big reveal, right in the middle of the Gospel of Mark, starting us at the end. And it's not like we're now going to spend two months looking at the evidence, weighing up the pros and the cons, and then we spring the answer on you in November. No. We're starting right at the end. You're the Messiah. I remember going with Tim to see the movie Titanic. We were newlyweds living in Tokyo, Japan, and I remember wondering, how on earth are they gonna make this movie suspenseful? Like we all know how it ends, right? This boat sinks. We've just been given the answer. Why is Christianity true? Why bother with a Christian community in the midst of a pandemic? Why anything, really? Because who Jesus is matters. When true identity is revealed, it changes things. Darth Vader, no. 
I am your father. An identity-revealing moment that changed the course of Luke Skywalker's life. Not only his own self-understanding, I'm Darth Vader's son, but the course of his whole life. Let me give you a few quick examples of why Jesus' identity changes things for us. That if, to paraphrase the theologian Robert Jensen, if Jesus is whoever God raised from the dead, having before raised Israel from Egypt, if Jesus is in some mysterious way God in the flesh on earth, or as I heard a teenager explain, God in a bod. If Jesus is God's plan in person, think about this. Your identity will change. But unlike Luke Skywalker's, yours will become secure and loving. If your identity is rooted in your career, what happens when the bonus doesn't come or you get laid off? If your identity is rooted in being a parent, what happens when you hit the empty nest? If your identity is rooted in one of our political parties, you'll have to demonize the opposition. What if your identity is rooted in being a tolerant and inclusive person? You will necessarily be bigoted against anybody that you think is closed-minded. If your identity instead is rooted in Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as God's plan and person here on earth, then when the career falters and the kids break your heart, and they will, you will not be crushed. And you're going to love your neighbor as yourself because God made you and God does not make trash. Take any suffering that you're going through right now. Maybe your marriage is fraying. You're not sure your small business will survive the pandemic or the anxiety medications not working the way it used to. Whatever shape your sufferings are coming in right now, Jesus has walked that road of sorrows. He knows mental anguish, loneliness, poverty, broken relationships. You can pour out your heart to God, not holding back. And Our sufferings are contained. A fence is put around them. They can only go so far because we know we are not alone in them. And there is a promised great and glorious day when our deepest longings will be met and our sins and our sufferings, they will not be able to consume or devour us. The big reveal secures and shapes our identity. What about the big reversal? Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. It is almost impossible for us, sitting here in the grandeur of this stained glass and stone, in the affluence and safety of Toronto, to imagine how take up your cross would have first sounded when Jesus said it. 
The cross was an excruciating instrument of torture, pornographic humiliation. It was reserved for criminals. It was so gruesome a death that even the Romans, who were not the touchy-feely type, even the Romans eventually outlawed it. And the fact that Jesus, God's plan in a person, had just said he was going to suffer this? Well, that's disgusting. That's disgusting, Peter thought. What are you talking about? Far from making it easier for people to follow him, Jesus wants to point out how difficult it is. This is not an effective church growth strategy, especially in the midst of a pandemic. He tells people, do some sober feasibility studies, risk assessment analysis before they make a decision. And as usual, Jesus is just loving us, refusing to only tell us what we want to hear. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, the man who's going to die on a cross. This is the big reversal that the Messiah, God's plan in a person, which those first century disciples imagined was going to come in some power and some prestige, maybe even some military might, uh, to overthrow the evil Roman oppressors. That God's plan in a person, you know, the God who made, the, uh, who made Orion and the Pleiades, you know, God who's responsible for Mozart, quantum mechanics, that that same God would work out God's plan for the world by dying, naked for all to jeer at, Rusty nails hammered through his hands and feet? That, my friends, that is a reversal of all the ways the world is supposed to work. The big reversal of the cross, where God wins by by losing, gives life by dying, gives hope through despair. It marks everything else that Jesus does and says. Blessed are those who mourn, love your enemies, The first shall be last, the last shall be first. This cross-shaped life, a life marked by the big reversal of the cross, this is what it means to learn how to follow Jesus. And if you're spiritually searching today, I'm sorry we don't have more time this morning to explore what's actually happening when Jesus dies on the cross. But do sign up for our upcoming Alpha course. American writer Frederick Buechner describes for us, however, what this cross-shaped life looks like. This will help us in our feasibility study of whether we want to learn how to follow this man. The world says, mind your own business. Jesus says, there's no such thing as your own business. The world says, follow the wisest course, be a success. Jesus says, follow me and be crucified. The world says, drive carefully. The life you save may be your own. And Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The world says, law and order. Jesus says, love. The world says, get. And Jesus says, give. In terms of the world's sanity, Jesus is crazy as a coot. And anybody who thinks he can follow him 
without being a little bit crazy too, is laboring less under a cross than under a delusion. The big reveal, the big reversal, they cannot be separated from one another. We can only understand who Jesus really is as the crucified Messiah, and Tyler will be looking at that in some more depth next Sunday. Peter wanted a crucifixion-free Jesus, for which he was rewarded with that stinging, get-behind-me-Satan. And the only way to have in mind the priorities of God as followers of Jesus, and not simply as followers of ourselves or our bank accounts, it's to know that the big reveal and the big reversal, they go together. There is no following Jesus without our identity and our hope being cross-shaped, being marked by sacrifice and suffering. This is a teaching so costly, so soul-rattling. And as the staff here work really hard to encourage people to come back to church, why offer up such an unpalatable start to the fall? because I don't have anything else to offer. I can't offer you singing. Can't even give you a cup of coffee after the service. There's no large and bustling children and youth programs right now, they're small. All I have is Jesus, crucified, dead, risen, alive. This is Jesus and he wants you. Thanks be to God. Amen.